Scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus in the Hugh Bible. Um, That's in front of you in a chair somewhere. Uh, That's on page 47 if you did not bring one with you. And I'll be reading uh, the whole chapter for us. Let us give attention to God's holy word. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice... You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing? Or blind, is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming to meet you. When he sees you, He will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him, put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs." Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son." At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, 
Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Then the Lord, well, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. So obviously in chapter 4, we have a little bit of a continuation uh, from chapter 3. There is uh, more dialogue be- between God and Moses that, where we continue to see what we saw last week, which is Moses is horribly insufficient to do any of this. And God is perfectly sufficient. However, taken as a whole, I think that we get a picture in chapter 4, not only of how God will redeem his people, which is kind of the theme the first 15 chapters of the book, but we also see what lies ahead for the rest of the book, which is the call to obey their Redeemer, where they get the law. This morning, I'm cutting up the chapter, moving around a little bit, into three spheres of obedience that are kind of concentric circles. The first one would be that as his people, we must obey his commands to ourselves. Second, as his people, we must obey his commands in our families. And thirdly, as his people, we must obey his commands in our fellowship. Firstly, obeying the commands to ourselves. We're going to see this in the first nine verses and also 18 to 23. It's through the reality of his word. So God just doesn't go to Egypt and start doing signs and wonders. He he speaks it first. He speaks it to someone who hopefully will obey his word. The reality of his word is powerful. We looked last week at the insufficiency of Moses, the sufficiency of God. God doesn't immediately send Moses to Pharaoh, as one scholar, Alec Mateer, says. uh, There are words before there are deeds. Uh, God created all things by the word of his power. He spoke everything into existence. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Hebrews 4, quoted in my prayer, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's, That's serious. God is continuing to show Moses the reality of his spoken word that he would obey it. Now, there are several commands in the first 9 to 16 verses that we'll look at in a moment, but verses 18 through 23 also have commands. Well, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to take your family. I want you to do all these miracles that that I've shown you to do. You've been given my word, now you have something to do, go and do it. 
And all of this has to be in obedience to God's Word. But secondly, this command to Moses, he, he sees it's through the power of his Word, not simply the reality. Moses realizes the power of the Word of the one who is speaking to, to him as evidence in these, these three signs that, that he gives. That's verses 2 to 5. Moses throws down the staff, it becomes a serpent, and Moses runs. But then God says, oh, I want you to go grab it. And he does. Snakes were on uh, Pharaoh's crown. They represent the sun god of Egypt called Ra. And so God is essentially saying through this sign, I control you, Pharaoh. I'm the true God. I'm greater than all of your deities in Egypt. That's how powerful he is. In verses 6 to 7, God tells Moses to put out his hand and out of his clo- in and out of his cloak, becoming leprous and then becoming clean. Uh, Egypt, very large, industrious country, had all kinds of uh, diseases that no one can cure. One of the worst, even in Jesus' day, is leprosy of the skin, which causes social ostracism and isolation almost indefinitely. A cure would be wonderful. And God says, I'm the only one who can. I have power over all diseases because I am the true God. But then, finally, in verses 8 to 9, they detail a preview of the water of the Nile becoming blood. Obviously, the Nile is the reason why there is a country called Egypt. All of the fish, all of the fertile soil, all of the the water for crops to eat. No Nile, no Egypt. And God says, I could take that away in the blink of an eye. I control all of creation. I am Lord over the flood, as we said in our call to worship. But thirdly, Moses would recognize that these commands not are simply through the reality of his word or even the power of it, but it's through the fatherly warning of disobedience. There's more declarations of power in verses 21 to 23 when God declares he has the power and the authority to harden Pharaoh's heart and to declare Israel his firstborn son. If you squirm at the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, stay with us and hang in there a few more weeks and we'll discuss that further. But God obviously is condemning what Pharaoh is going to do, which is to disobey. Let my people go, no. There are consequences to disobeying God. Deadly, fatal, eternal consequences. But we have to remember that while the wages of sin, all sin, is death, we have fatherly mercy here. He's not saying to Moses, go to the people and tell them to obey me so that I will love them. He says, go to the people and obey me because I already have, regardless of themselves. I chose Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth, not because he was the strongest, the bravest, or the smartest, but because I did This is my firstborn son, this nation. 
Therefore, I'm giving them this fatherly warning. As I speak to Moses, to Pharaoh, eventually, all of the people are called into obedience. Pharaoh disobeys. He eventually will die eternally. And through Moses, the people will be called to obey, just as we are called to obey this morning. We have, we have the word. We have the word that we, we've already said from 2 Timothy 3 and Hebrews 4. We don't, we don't need anything else. We, we have his word to obey. Are we willing to do so? Again, knowing, brothers and sisters, that we're not called to obey out of legalism or so that God will like us and favor us or not give us hard things in our life. That has nothing to do with it. He calls us to obey because he's God. He reigns over heaven and earth. Everything that is good, right, and true comes from his mouth written down in his word that's been generously given to us. There are no excuses. There are no reasons not to obey him. And so we are called this morning to do so. But firstly, that's, that's to each of us individually. Mom, dad, son, daughter, grandparent, single people, little children, old people, whippersnappers like me, Everybody, even Pharaoh, obey me. There are consequences. But that transitions into obeying his commands in our families. Now, I bet you have no idea what's going on in verses 24 to 26 because it is odd. I mean, we have like a hard left turn in the middle of the text that comes seemingly out of nowhere. If you would look there with me, we have to see that we have to obey His commands in our families through recognizing how He relates to us. See, He's a holy God. We're sinners, as Moses is going to continuously show us in this chapter. But what, how does He relate to us as sinners? What, what's going on in this text? Well, Moses, uh, his wife, Zipporah, and their sons are traveling back to Egypt, but it's clear that Moses did not make sure that his sons were circumcised. Now, again, who cares, right? That's a command. Maybe God gave it to Abram as, as an option, like do this if you feel like it. Does God ever command things like that? No, he doesn't. So this, this was the sign of the relationship with the Israelites. How are you going to know that you're my people physically? God said to Abram, Abram, you're going to have to circumcise yourself and your sons on the eighth day that they are born. That's the visible sign of the covenant that I have made with you. He gave him his word, but then he gave them a sign that goes with the covenant promises. Involved blood, involved cutting, it involved children, sons in the old covenant. It physically signified and separated the Israelites from all other people. This is how he chose to relate to his people corporately, and it wasn't an option. 
the very, very vague details in these few verses. What was Moses thinking? Maybe it wasn't a Midianite practice. And so he thought, well, I don't want to have that type of conflict with my wife. We'll just let that go. Maybe he just didn't want to do it. Maybe he was working too hard and he was too sleepy and tired to pay attention to God's commands. But God takes this very seriously and seeks to put Moses to death over a lack of obedience. How on earth does this have any relevance to us? We don't, we don't circumcise in the new covenant. That was made clear the council in Jerusalem in the New Testament. Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul, a converted Jew, says this, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is the sign of entry into a covenant relationship in the new covenant. That replaces circumcision. Now, you could argue with me on that, but I'm just reading from Paul. That's his understanding of Exodus chapter 4 and Genesis 17. We don't circumcise, but that's been replaced in the new and better covenant, the author of the Hebrews says. The, the daughters are welcomed in. There, there's no more cutting that's needed. There's no more blood that's needed because the blood was spilt already on the cross. Is it a throwaway thing? No, I'm afraid not. Is it necessary for salvation? No, it is not. Thief on the cross. Should we throw it away, though? No, we shouldn't. I am... Uh, it's not a throwaway issue, what we do with baptism. Now, in church history over the last 2,000 years, if you wanted to look at the two sacraments and say, which one was the most argued about? It would not be baptism. It would be the Lord's Supper and the nature of it. But in our day and age, in our country, particularly south of, in our country, uh, this is a major cause of disturbance. And I would say if you have more questions about baptism, the sign of circumcision, I'll be discussing this in the fall in a leadership class. You're all welcome to. When we talk about the Westminster standards. Uh, you don't have to understand what I'm talking about with baptism or necessarily agree with me to join this PCA church. That was not in the membership vows. But, but this is what I've subscribed to as an officer in the PCA. And this is what I'm going to practice. Infant and covenant child baptism doesn't save, isn't necessary for salvation. But God is saying to Moses, this is my sign. It's not a throwaway issue. And so, therefore, we have, secondly, we're obeying in the family through the gracious warning of disobedience. Again, God is saying, don't do this, Moses, and I'm ending it. I mean, I've got you as my redeemer. Uh, you're going to be my spokesperson in, in Egypt with, with Aaron. I don't, I don't need that. I don't need you. 
If you're going to disobey my command, I will seek to put you to death. Again, as we've already seen, the wages of sin is death. Jesus said to let the children come to me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that a child of one believing parent is holy. If if your son doesn't have the sign, Moses, well, you're going to die. God expects obedience. Uh, BCO, the fun blue book that I was reading from earlier, 56.1 says baptism isn't to be unnecessarily delayed. Again, not attached to salvation. But it's been commanded. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. When churches are planted, what are they supposed to do? Make disciples and baptize. Bring people into covenant relationship with the Holy God. Now, thankfully for Moses, this must have been, on record, the weirdest circumcision ever recorded. Because Moses actually doesn't even do it. They're on the side of the road, and his wife gets a a flint out, does the circumcision. Uh, What on earth is she talking about with the, the bridegroom of blood? It's some type of ritual in the Old Testament attached to circumcision. I don't know. You like that technical term? I don't know. Let me tell you what it shows us, though. Disobedience causes death. Blood can bring forgiveness and mercy. That's about all I can draw from from that verse. And Moses failed as a husband and a father. But brothers... You're going to be just like me right now, and you're going to fail. I've failed in many ways as a husband and a father too. Does God put him to death? It says he seeks to put him to death. Don't you think that if God wanted to kill Moses, he'd have been dead? Another glimmer of God's mercy. Even as it is a call to all parents, the book of Deuteronomy, to teach your children the faith, especially husbands and fathers. Problem in the home? Who's, the, who's God going to call? He called Adam. He, see, he sought to put Moses to death. Now, that's about the most unpopular thing I could probably say in America today almost. But God takes his children seriously, obedience to his commands seriously. And even if Moses doesn't really care and checks out, doesn't matter. Familiarize ourselves with what the sacraments are, with what the commands are to parents. Our children's ministry, our youth ministry are not parent replacement models. They're parent partnership models. It's up to you in many ways. And the church partners with you. The church is necessary, as we said in the membership vows. And the session is here to assist and to pray with you with whatever complications arise in your household. I must also caveat this by saying that I am friends with David Williamson, who's the pastor of Hernando Baptist, brother in Christ, wonderful Christian man. I'll meet with him this week, and he and I will probably discuss Exodus 4 and say, 
well, you're wrong. And I'll say, well, you're wrong. And we're not going to say that it doesn't matter. But we're also brothers in Christ as well. But the call for leadership to lead our families, lead our wives, lead our children. We say this frequently from the pulpit and in Sunday school as elders in this church. Please take it seriously. Mothers and moms as well, wives as well. That leads us to another point. We've talked about our own individual lives and the commands that we've received. We've talked about the fact that we're all placed in families whether we're parents, whether we're not parents, uh, we all have parents. We're all in families of some kind, but also we're in fellowship together. We have to obey his commands in our fellowship versus, going backward a little bit, 10 to 17, we've got this dude, Aaron, that's talked about. Then he shows up on the scene in verses 27 to 31. Hey, guess what? We're all placed in the church through our baptisms and through circumcision back then, we got to deal with each other's mess. What does that mean in fellowship? Well, we have to obey His commands in our fellowship through dependence on each other. Again, verses 10 to 17, we see another complaint from Moses about not being able to speak properly or eloquently. Amen, brother! Yes, that's me. I could quote those verses to you when I was in seminary going, what? I, I'm an introvert. I don't know how to speak. I was never class anything in high school. And God keeps talking to Moses and says, like, the point's not you, brother. So what does he do? He doesn't ditch Moses and say, well, you're not good enough and not equipped enough. He says, don't you know that I've already, I already knew that you couldn't speak, Moses, and I've already called Aaron. He's already on the way. And you're not going to be able to do this without Aaron. No Aaron, no Moses. No Moses, no Exodus. When we think about the book of Exodus and we think about popcorn questions like, what comes to mind? Flood, Nile, Pharaoh, Moses. But no Aaron, no Moses. They are going to have to depend on each other as they both rely on the Lord to obey his commands together and accomplish ministry. God reminds Moses that he's the one who controls all of our senses. Moses, did you not think I knew already that you couldn't speak very well? I'm giving you Aaron. These are obviously unique circumstances, but it points to the fact that we, in the church, have to depend on each other. Membership vows were taken. Uh, stories of redemption have been given to the session that are unique, that, that we need in this church. We need each other. We have ministry teams because we need each other. No man can live on an island. And it continues, though that we not only depend on each other, but we have to collaborate with one another. Look at verses 27 and following. You, you actually see these brothers working together. God said to Moses, well, go back to Egypt and do what I told you to do. 
He goes there, and what does he find? He finds Aaron. What do they do? Does Aaron come in and say, this is actually the Aaron show? Moses, I'd like you to sit down. Does Moses come in and go, I'm actually much better looking than you, Aaron? We don't need you anymore. They obey together. And they do what I would call collaborate. Moses does what he's supposed to do. As, as the guy, he tells Aaron what to say. Then Aaron gets up and he speaks to all of God's people. They actually obey together through collaboration. They do what they were told to do. Why doesn't God just pick a better, more equipped leader or just appear before all the people himself and not use Moses and not use Aaron? He uses sinners in community, in collaboration, through dependence to accomplish his purposes. That's what he did, and that's what he does. Submitting yourselves to the government and discipline of the church refers to submitting yourself to not the pastor or the teaching elder, but to a plurality of elders who collaborate with one another, who pray with and for one another, who work with all of the ministry team leaders, and whether or not this person goes on the ministry team or doesn't, approves this budget or doesn't approve that budget, never by one person, through collaboration, which is one of the major differences between us and any other church government structure. Where is it from? Moses is about to get whacked in the head by his father-in-law Jethro in chapter 18 to say, go get some elders. You can't do this by yourself. You never were meant to. I gave you Aaron. Collaborate. This is chief. If we're going to be on a ministry team, if we're going to be on the diaconate, if we're going to be on the session, we're going to collaborate. Not a one-man show. But thirdly and finally, we obey in fellowship through patience from God and disobedience. Look at, the, look at the patience of God in verses 13 and 14. I mean, Moses has failed miserably again. Hey, God, I can't talk. Send someone else. Are you kidding me? God's anger is kindled. But he doesn't kill him. He gives him a mercy in a brother who's going to help him. Moses doesn't deserve to lead. Moses doesn't deserve to have his name written in the book. Moses isn't even going to go to the promised land because he's going to disobey again. Over and over, we see God's patience with Moses even when he disobeys, which I find to be an amazing encouragement. How on earth are we going to obey the commands to ourselves, the commands to our families, and the commands to our church fellowship when we are a room full of sinners? Because there is one who obeyed perfectly both actively and passively. John 1, 1 through 5 tells us Jesus is the Word. He's the physical form of 
the word. He actively obeyed his whole life. He kept all of the law without sinning by omission or commission. No sin. Perfect and total obedience. He passively obeyed all of his life. He was born of a human. He suffered all his life. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is the ultimate form of his passive obedience, which led to his passion and a better sign than circumcision, the sign of the supper, which as a sacrament is a sign to the best wonder that there ever will be, more than what Moses saw, the Son of God paying for my sins, paying for your sins, and being raised on the third day that we would have eternal hope to see Him again face to face. That's the best sign. Because the sign of the supper points to the crucifixion, which is the best wonder, which is the only reason and the only way you will ever progress in your obedience to yourself, in your family, and in this church. I pray that it is so. Let us pray together. Christ, you are the faithful one You are the obedient one, but it was on our behalf, disobedient ones, that you kept the promises of the covenant, paying its penalty on the cross, that the sign of entrance into community would change from circumcision to baptism. We ask this morning that you would give us mercy continually as we seek to be a community which follows you in obedience individually, as families, and as a fellowship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we said, uh, the sacraments are signs. Circumcision was a sign of the words that had been given 